0: Well, we uh, continue our study of uh, 2 Thessalonians, which has brought us to chapter 2, where Paul corrects erroneous teaching about the end times. We saw last week that false teachers were telling the church that they were in the day of the Lord, that time of God's final judgment on a sinful world. Uh, This, of course, contradicted Paul's earlier teaching that the church would be raptured before this time of judgment. Uh, This literally threw the church into a tizzy. Uh, Verse 2 says they were shaken in their composure. Uh, They were deeply uh, disturbed. Paul writes chapter 2 to calm their hearts and to stabilize their faith, by denouncing the false teachers and reaffirming his previous teaching on the end times. Now, since chapter 2 deals with the end times, and being sensitive to to the fact that people are at different levels of understanding about the end times, I thought it would be good uh, to first provide a survey of future events. Uh, Last week, we started that survey. We only made it through the first three events, and so let's briefly review, and I'm hoping to uh, conclude this this morning, so I will be moving rather quickly, so I hope you can uh, hang with me. But again, this is just laying a foundation for our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I believe this will greatly aid us as next week we begin to go verse by verse through this chapter. We saw last week that the present time that we we are in is what we could call the church age, and that's the first thing there on your sermon notes, the church age. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Due to the nation of Israel's rejection of Christ, God created the church to now become His standard-bearer, to display His grace and glory to the world. The church was birthed on the day of Pentecost, which is recorded in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came to dwell in the hearts of all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved, without distinction between Jew or Gentile. What is the church? Well, the church, as we saw last week, and you see there in your notes, is first, what? The temple of Christ. Uh, The church is a home for Christ in a sinful world in order to extend His presence, to express His character, and to expound His truth. But not only are we the temple of Christ, we are the bride of Christ to love to worship and praise Jesus by giving Him our undivided attention, undying affection, and uncompromising allegiance. We are also the body of Christ, consisting of many members with different functions, but all united under one head, the Lord Jesus. For what purpose? So that we will walk as Jesus walked to love one another, and to serve others. And then we are also, of course, the ambassador of Christ, to reconcile the lost to God, to be a bold witness for God. Now, what will be the next event to happen? The rapture of the church, and that's the second thing in your survey of future events. The rapture of the church, we looked at this last week, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. The rapture is when Jesus comes to remove the church from the world so we can take our place at His side to be His bride and to reign with Him forever. First Thessalonians 4 tells us that when that happens, the dead believers... Will rise first, as you see there in your notes, and then the living believers will then be called up together with them. The rapture of the church is imminent, meaning that it could happen any moment. Therefore, we are to eagerly look for it and being ready and alert. First uh, Thessalonians, going back to First Thessalonians chapter one, verses nine and 10. We read this concerning the believers at Thessalonica. It says, they turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and then notice, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, the third event on your survey, which is associated with the rapture, it's the judgment seat of Christ that is referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, and 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15. And again, this is review. We looked at both of those passages uh, last week. We saw that the judgment seat of Christ is designed for believers only, and it deals with rewards, not salvation. Our salvation is secure in Jesus, but the judgment or the beam of seat of Christ when we will be examined by Christ. Each believer will be examined by Christ to determine how well we live the Christian life. Did we live up to what we were called to be? Did we live out those good works that God preordained for us? And all of that will be done to determine the reward that we receive from Christ. And Christ will not only examine at that time the character of our actions and our attitudes, but also the motives behind them. Were we seeking God's glory or glory for ourselves? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 5 says, "'Wait until the Lord comes, "'who will both bring to light "'the things hidden in the darkness,' and disclose the motive of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, in the New Testament, let me mention five specific rewards are mentioned. I'm sure there are more, but at least these five are mentioned in the New Testament. There is the uncorruptible crown In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 25, for those who gain mastery over the flesh to walk in righteousness. The second crown that's mentioned in the New Testament is the crown of rejoicing. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 19, for soul winners, for those that bring others to Christ. And then there's the crown of life in James chapter 1 verse 12 for those who remain faithful to Jesus as they endure trial and suffering and then there's the crown of righteousness in second Corinthian I'm sorry second Timothy chapter 4 verse 8 for those who fight the good fight of faith who finish their course and love Christ appearing And then the fifth crown that's mentioned in the New Testament is the crown of glory in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 4 for leaders who are faithful shepherds of God's flock and who provide an example worth following. And by the the way, what do we do with the crowns we receive? We cast them at the feet of Jesus in an act of worship and adoration. Why? Because only by His grace can we accomplish anything. Therefore, the receiving of our rewards ultimately is not for the glory of the recipient, but what? For the receiver, uh, for, the, for the giver, for the glory of the giver. Now, the judgment seat of Christ, as we saw last week, should be one of the greatest motivating factors in a believer's life, knowing that one day I will stand face to face with Jesus to give an account I mentioned to you 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. This is actually where we concluded last week. It says, And now, little children, abide in Him. Why? So that when He appears, when He comes, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him at sh- in shame at His coming. So it would be my prayer that each one of us at our church would be able to come to that day with confidence knowing that we've lived a life pleasing to Christ, and it will not be a day of shame. Now, what takes place on the earth following the rapture? And the answer is the fourth point in our survey, and that is what's called the tribulation, the tribulation period. In Matthew 24, verse 21, Jesus says, There will be a time of tribulation. Such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. In First Thessalonians chapter 5, we read, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like the birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape." Uh, Revelation chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19 provides the most detailed and vivid description of the tribulation, and it describes it as a time of great darkness, judgment, and wrath. Just to give you a flavor, just to give you an example, Revelation chapter 6 verses 15 through 17 reads, and the kings of the earth and the great men... And the commanders and the rich and the strong man and every slave and free man man, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Now, this is very pertinent uh, to our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 because the false teachers were saying that the tribulation had what? That it had already come, that the church was in this period of time. Now, what is the tribulation period? And look at just several statements that I've made there in your sermon notes. It's the seven years following the rapture. Uh, It's known as Daniel's 70th week. And I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Daniel 9. Daniel 9 provides not only one of the greatest prophecies in all the Scripture, but this particular prophecy sort of provides a foundation for all end-time prophecies. This is sort of where we begin, and then we're able, from other of the Old Testament prophets, uh, New Testament passages, especially Revelation, are able to add to this. But it's here where we come to understand that it will be a seven-year period of time. Now, just following your Bibles as I read the passage, Uh, just in the context, you remember at this time uh, the children of Israel are in the Babylonian captivity. And uh, Daniel has been uh, reading in the prophets, especially Jeremiah. And he comes to understand that God is going to restore the people following the captivity, and he's, and he's praying to God, acknowledging the sins of God's people, asking Him when that time will come, how He will accomplish His purposes through His people. And then God sends Gabriel, uh, the angel, to Daniel. And Gabriel gives Daniel this prophecy, beginning at verse 24. He says, 70 weeks, notice verse 24, Daniel 9, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing "...of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks or sixty-nine weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then, after sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary." And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he, this would be the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, we do not have the time to examine all the exciting details of this prophecy, but just notice several facts. First, it's very clear that this prophecy applies to the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, the Jewish temple, and not the church. Very clear. Number two, the prophecy announces the time When certain things will be accomplished for the Jewish people. Verse 24 says to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now it's very obvious that that's referring to what? The return of Christ. Uh, Because it's only then that those things will occur in the nation of Israel as they return back to their Messiah and embrace Him as their Lord. The third fact that you need to see about this prophecy is the word week. When he says 70 weeks, the word week refers to a period of 70 years. Therefore, when the prophecy says 70 weeks have been decreed on the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem, this is referring to to how many years? 490. 70 times 7. 490 years. Notice also in this prophecy, the 490 years are divided into three parts. The first seven weeks, or the first 49 years, in which it says Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And this took place during the ministry of Nehemiah. In other words, this is at Daniel's time looking forward. And if you go 49 years ahead from the time of this prophecy, the city was rebuilt under the leadership of Nehemiah. The next 62 weeks, or 435 years, concludes, he says, with a very, very special event. He says, Messiah, the prince, comes into the city of Jerusalem. Now, to show you how absolutely amazing And precise this prophecy is, in verse 25 we read that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which would be what? 69 weeks or 483 years. In Nehemiah chapter 2, we are given the date when the decree was issued to rebuild Jerusalem. And if you start at that date and go forward exactly 483 prophetic years, do you know what date you arrive at? April 6, 32 A.D., which was Palm Sunday, the original Palm Sunday, the day of Christ's triumphal entry into Where? The holy city of Jerusalem. For what purpose? To present himself as what? Their king, of course, who they rejected. Now, this leaves us with what? One final week. One final week of seven years. What do we discover about this final week of seven years? Well, in verse 26, we discover that before the final seven-year period begins, there's a gap where at least two things happen. It says the Messiah will be what? Cut off. What is that a reference to? The crucifixion of Christ. The Messiah will be cut off, and the second thing that it says will happen, the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed, and that took place in 70 A.D. by the Romans under the uh, emperor Titus. Also in this gap, between the 69th and the 70th week, you not only have Christ's crucifixion, not only the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 ADD, but you also would put in that gap the church, the church age, which as we saw last week, was was what? A mystery in the Old Testament. The church was not revealed to the Old Testament prophets. And uh, Paul clearly uh, states this in Ephesians and in uh, Colossians. Now, This last seven weeks, this last week, or this last seven-year period begins with what? It begins with a prince coming, and he does what? He signs a covenant, enters a covenant with the nation of Israel, or a peace treaty. And then we're told in verse 27 that in the middle of the week, or after three and a half years, he breaks the covenant, and he desecrates the, the temple as the abomination of desolation. And turns against God's people. It's very interesting in Matthew 24 verses 15 and 16, Jesus said, now listen, Jesus said this, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, Jesus himself is referring back to Daniel 9. He says, okay, when you see the abomination of desolation, that Daniel talked about, this individual that breaks this covenant, desecrates the temple, and turns against God's people, he says, when you see him standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee. And then going down to verse 21, in the same context, Jesus says, for then there will be great tribulation. Such has not occurred, since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. Now, the final thing that we're told in verse 27 is that very prince that causes such great desolation on Israel and God's people will himself be brought to what? A complete destruction. That destruction is decreed upon him. Now, let me ask you, who is the prince to come? Who is the abomination of desolation? Yes, it's the Antichrist. It's the Antichrist, which takes us to the next statement in your notes about the tribulation. It begins this seven-year period that's still yet future that will take place after the rapture of the church. It will begin when the Antichrist, this world leader who leads a confederation of ten European nations, and I'll explain more about that next week, but I believe the Bible is very clear that he will rise up as a leader over a confederation of ten European nations. He signs a covenant with Israel, guaranteeing their safety and promising peace to the world. And then after three and a half years, he breaks the covenant, breaks the treaty, declares himself to be God, the abomination of desolation that desecrates the temple. He does this in the Jewish temple, and he attempts to eradicate Israel at that point and all the followers of Christ. Now, of course, this is extremely pertinent to our study of 2 Thessalonians 2, because in 2 Thessalonians 2, you are given one of the most vivid descriptions of the Antichrist that's found in the Bible. And please turn there. Now, next week, we're going to examine this very carefully. All I want to do this morning is read these verses that gives this vivid description of the Antichrist. Look, let me begin reading at verse 3, verse 3. It says, let no one in any way deceive you for it, he's referring to the day of the Lord, he will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man, here's the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat, in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, this is Paul speaking, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. And next week we'll look at what is that restrainer. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and we can clearly see that, can't we? Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed from the Lord, will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in in accord, here's Antichrist again, with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness of those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they might believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged, who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Now, look at the last statement in your notes concerning this tribulation period. In this seven-year period, God inflicts the world with a series of judgments. And these are seen in Revelation chapter 6 through... Chapter 19, you have seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven vial judgments, and seven peals of thunder. It's interesting, those seven thunder judgments, we're not told what they are. We're told what the others are, but not these thunder judgments. And the purpose of these judgments is to bring the nation of Israel to faith in Christ and to punish the unbelieving world for its sin and rebellion. Now, let's move quick. What's the next event that will take place in our survey of future events? The return of Christ. The return of Christ will, of course, mark the end of that seven-year tribulation period. Uh, and that's recorded in Matthew 24, as you see there, Revelation 19, where it talks about one who is faithful, will, will come with the armies of heaven. And we see there, as you see in your notes, Christ returns to earth to defeat Antichrist and the armies of the battle of the world at the Battle of Armageddon, and to take his rightful place on Earth's throne as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What takes place after his return? That brings us to the sixth event, what we call the sheep goat judgment. And that's recorded in Matthew twenty five, verses thirty one and forty four. This is where Christ judges. All who survive the tribulation, with unbelievers, called the goats, being sent into eternal punishment, and believers, the sheep, granted entrance into Christ's earthly kingdom. So again, if you follow, prior to the tribulation, the church is raptured. And then there's this seven-year tribulation period. And there will be people, although there will be oh we know from what's told us in Revelation, over we lose over half the world's population in that seven-year period of time, but there'll be a great host of people that will survive and be alive uh, when Christ returns, and, uh, and those are the ones that will be judged. Again, uh, the unbelievers into punishment and those that uh, are, are accepted will be the ones that inhabit the world during uh, the kingdom age when we reign and rule with Christ And that brings us to the seventh event, the kingdom age. And I know I'm moving quickly, but we do need to just at least conclude the survey, give you the main points. The kingdom age, which is seen in Isaiah 11, Daniel 2, uh, Revelation 20, uh, verse 4, talks about Christ reigning for a thousand years. And this is a thousand years with Christ ruling the earth. And we are His queen at His side to reign and rule with Him, to help administer His kingdom. Uh, We're told that Satan will be bound during this time. He'll be put in a prison, put off earth. We're told that the curse will be removed from the earth and the animal kingdom, the environment will be perfect again. And then the eighth event will be Satan's release. We're told at the end of that thousand year period, we're told in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, Satan is released. Why? To test those who have been born during the kingdom age with many following him in one last failed attempt to overthrow Christ. It, it's really a very sad, tragic scene. He's released to test those that have been born during that thousand-year period, the kingdom age, and we're told that many are deceived. They side with Satan in one last ditch attempt to overthrow uh, Christ. And of course, uh, they are defeated by the Lord. And that brings us to the ninth event in our survey, the, gri- the great white Throne judgment. The great white throne judgment. And you can read about that in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. This is for unbelievers and unbelievers only. The things that we're told about the great white throne judgment is the universe is destroyed by fire, the earth and the heavens. It's after this that we're given a new earth, a new heaven. All believers, all unbelievers, as you see there, will be finally judged before the great white throne and will be thrown into the lake of fire along with the the devil, the Antichrist, uh, and his followers. And then that brings us to the last event on our survey, eternity. Eternity, and you can read about that in Revelation 21, chapter 21 and chapter 22. A new heaven and a new earth will replace the old. There will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, no more night in eternity future, which is the destiny of all believers. Amen? Amen. Now, I know I did that quickly, but I I really needed to complete that, again, to lay that foundation for us to begin to go verse by verse through 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 next week. Now, look at that last statement in your notes, and I'll close with this. And this is so important to me. I I emphasized this last week that uh, the purpose of studying future events should not be to build a prophetic calendar, but to build Christ like character. And this emphasizes the same thing. Always remember. The purpose of prophecy is not to create speculation about the future, but motivation to live for Christ today. Every single New Testament writer that taught on the end times, their ultimate purpose was to motivate believers, comfort believers, encourage believers to stand true for Christ in the midst of difficulty and remain faithful to Him. So as we come to our invitation... As we come to our invitation, if you're an unbeliever, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, trusting that He bore the penalty of your sin, and He rose again to forgive you of your sin, and you've never opened your heart to Him, you've never invited Him in to forgive you of your sins and to take control of your life, my admonition to you would be flee the wrath that is to come. As we saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, there is coming a day when all believers will pay the penalty of what? Eternal punishment, everlasting punishment, as they will be banished from the presence of the Lord forever. Now if you're a believer, man how this should motivate us. How this should encourage, it should comfort us. Let me leave you one verse as we move into the invitation. 2 Peter 3 verse 14. That entire chapter is about the end times. And then here's Peter's conclusion. Therefore, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, the very things we just went through, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. So, I think the question for us as believers, if Christ were to come for His church, Today, how would Jesus Christ find you? Would you be able to look into his eyes with confidence, knowing that by his grace you lived a life pleasing to him? Or would that be a day of shame? because of things you've been hiding. Because folks, when that day comes, you know, we get we get we're so interested about projecting an image before other people. Jesus Christ doesn't give a hoot about your image. What he cares about is what you are in reality. And when that day comes and when you stand face to face with him, you're going to be revealed for who you are. And there will be no hiding. There'll be no covers. There'll be no mask. So, this should motivate us not only to holiness of living, but again, to remain faithful until that day comes. Father, thank you for this uh, wonderful truth uh, this morning. And uh, Lord, I pray it will be a motivating factor. It will be an encouragement to us. It will bring comfort to us. Comfort as we experience trials to remain faithful. Motivation to uh, turn from sin and to live a holy life that we would be able to approach that day with confidence and it would not be a day of shame and shrinking back. So, Lord, uh, speak to our hearts. Have your way now as the invitation is extended. And may we all be obedient as we put our faith in you and we trust your grace. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.